Last week in Acts chapter 3, we looked at the healing of the lame man through the hands of Peter and John. We saw that it was done in the name of Jesus. And you might recall we said it's a sign of the coming restoration and the renewal of creation. The healing of the lame man is a sign of the new creation. It's a sign of the glory foreseen, for example, in Isaiah 35, right, where the prophet speaks of the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and the lame leaping like a deer, all in a realm of everlasting, irreversible joy, where sorrow and sighing have fled away. So today, continuing in Acts, Peter will take the opportunity afforded by this wondrous sign to preach the second, second recorded Christian sermon. We'll make three points. They're there in the bulletin on your outline. The power of the name, the call to repentance, and the witness of the prophets. So, first the power of the name. The scene begins with the healed man clinging We're told to Peter and John, not because he needs their help to stand or walk anymore, but surely just out of gratitude. And that people are astounded. They assemble in Solomon's portico, which is a structure on the eastern wall of the temple. Jesus himself taught there in John's gospel. So Peter seizes the opportunity to preach, to address the people. Men of Israel. Remember, he's speaking to Jews. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Meaning, why do you wonder at the miracle? Or why do you stare at us as if it's our own power or piety that has made this man walk? It's, It's neither our power or our piety. That's the cause of this walking and leaping and praising God that we looked at last week. The reason, and now Peter begins to unpack it at greater depth. He goes back a little bit, and he goes back to the covenant formula. You'll see that there in the text. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Now, think of this. In in his Pentecost sermon, he's already appealed to the prophets. He's already appealed to the Psalms, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. He's already appealed to the predictions of the coming Messiah and the coming of the kingdom. And here he does something even more fundamental something wider and deeper upon which the ministry of the prophets depends. That is, he appeals to the covenant. Namely, to the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring. So it's important to see this, because we talk about the covenant a lot. He is interpreting the gospel in the frame of the covenant. The gospel is not a standalone thing. It's the gospel of the covenant, specifically the gospel of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with the patriarchs. No Abrahamic covenant, no gospel. And so Peter's establishing a kind of basic continuity between the era of promise and the era of fulfillment. The new covenant in Jesus, Calvin says, just is the renewal of the Abrahamic covenant. 
In substance, he says, as does our whole tradition, right? The new covenant and the covenant with Abraham are one. One people of God across all eras of redemptive history. And this perspective, this covenantal perspective frames the text. You'll notice it's mentioned here at the beginning. And then down in verse 25, the promise to Abraham is mentioned again as Peter closes the sermon. So as we always say around here, Jesus cannot be Scandinavian. Right? He comes forth in fulfillment of the ancient covenantal promises. This God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Peter says, glorified his servant, Jesus. In calling him the servant, he is identifying the slain Jesus, now exalted, with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The one who, after suffering, enters into his glory, which is always the pattern, suffering then glory. Behold, Isaiah says of the suffering one, my servant shall prosper. He shall be high, lifted up, and exalted. God, the covenant God of Abraham, has glorified his servant, meaning he has raised him up. For the very phrase, Jesus tells us, we heard this in the gospel lesson, the very phrase, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob proves the reality of the resurrection. There are some stunning pieces of teaching in the Gospels from the lips of Jesus. This is one of them. Where he says, look, if you simply would understand the preamble to the covenant, just the introductory phrase, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that alone is enough to establish the reality of the resurrection. For God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You might think, well, what's the net of this? What does this mean? Well, it means the covenant promises are resurrection promises. They are new creation promises. That's important, right? When will Abraham inherit the promises made to Abraham? In the resurrection. And the resurrection envisioned already in the covenant and seen by the prophets, has now begun in the resurrection of Christ. That's Peter's point. In short, Peter's argument is this. This is how his mind works, condensing a bunch of stuff together. His argument is this. God has glorified his servant, thus this lame man walks, anticipating the coming glory of the resurrection. God has glorified his servant, thus the lame man walks as an anticipation of the coming new creation. And Peter's going to make this explicit a little later, but before he gets to that, he continues with this really biting, stinging, fourfold indictment against the Jews to whom he is speaking. He says, first, God glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over. Yes, we've already seen, right? This was in accordance with God's purposes and plan, his predetermined plan. But they are still guilty of delivering Jesus over to the authorities. And as if this wasn't enough, he says, when Pilate had decided to release him, you denied him. 
It's a pretty brutal indictment, right? When the passion narrative is being unpacked in such a way that you're worse than Pilate in it. Pilate had decided to release him, but you denied him. The word means you disowned him. You repudiated him. You rejected even the Roman offer of his release. Third, Peter says, having denied the holy and righteous one, the spotless, innocent, obedient lamb, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So he's telling his audience that they engage in a perverse kind of substitution. It's the kind of sermon that can and will eventually get Christians killed. Proverbs 17 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And so the exchange of the righteous one for a murderer is a double abomination. The fourth part of this indictment is paradoxical. It's almost an oxymoron. You killed the author of life. You freed a murderer. You murdered the fountain of life. But, and here's the good news, God raised him from the dead. He overturns your verdict. He reverses your rejection and your repudiation. Death could not hold the author of life. And to this resurrection glory, Peter says, we are all witnesses. And it's the name of that one who has made this man well. Right? It's the exalted glory and power by which the rejected but now enthroned Christ acts. His name, his divine character and power. It is that which has caused this man to be leaping and praising God. Through the faith that comes in Jesus, the man is restored, Peter says, to perfect health. Again, a sign of the coming restoration of all things about which Peter will shortly speak. So he's only a few verses into the sermon. But notice what he's done. He's directed the whole crowd and he's directed our attention away from the miracle itself. And away from the apostles to the name of Jesus. Right? To the name of Jesus, the glorified servant. So that's the name. Second, here, there's a call to repentance. We've heard the indictment. He says in verse 17, And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did all your rulers. Now, he's not excusing their behavior. He's just condemned it in the harshest terms imaginable. Nor is he saying that repentance and forgiveness are not necessary. He's calling them to precisely that. The point is simply that while they should have known exactly who Jesus was, and they should have known exactly what they were doing, they lacked full cognizance of him and thus of their actions. We know this is the case because Jesus says it of his murderers from the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Paul says much the same thing in 2 Timothy. He says, I received mercy because I acted in ignorance. 
This ignorance means forgiveness is possible. And so Peter's announcing a divine amnesty. They may not have known what they were doing, but God knew full well what he was doing. Right? And he was fulfilling, Peter tells us, what was foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. Namely, that his Christ would suffer. So neither their ignorance nor the reality that they were unwittingly fulfilling God's prophetic plan, none of that changes the reality that they need to repent. Right? This is a call to repentance. You know what that means to a people who are the covenant people? who have the covenant sign, who as far as we can tell are in good standing, it means they're not in good standing in the covenant. It also means they can't just add Jesus to their Judaism. They are in danger. Peter commands them, repent therefore and turn back. It's really quite remarkable and deeply offensive, I think, to the original audience. If they repent and turn back, There are these three glorious blessings that will flow from repentance as they do for us as well. Three things I want you to see here then that flow from repentance. The first is this, that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be blotted out. Now, remember, the scandal here is this, that they're blotted out not by the priestly sacrificial system, Represented by the temple. But they're blotted out by the reality that the temple prefigured, which has now arrived in the person and in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter uses a a marvelous word for blotted out. It's a word that means to wash off or to wipe away or to erase or to obliterate. It's what God does with our tears in the book of Revelation. He wipes them away. God remembers your sins no more. The good news is so good that we have a really hard time believing it. Because there's a little Adam trying to establish his righteousness inside of us. God remembers your sins no more. He wipes the slate clean. The word here evoked, in the ancient world, they would write on papyrus skins, and the ink would get on there, but you could wash it off, and all the ink would run off, you know. It's like wash, a modern version would be, you know, if you were a kid, you had an etch-a-sketch. Some of you older people know what an etch-a-sketch is, right? You sketch something, and just shake it, and it's gone. God just obliterates your sins like that. He just wipes them out. It's a beautiful picture. So the mercy of God, Peter is saying, is greater than our hearts. It's greater than your guilt. Yes, you killed the author of life. Yes, Pilate wanted to release him, and you didn't. But God will blot out your sins if you just turn back to him. He'll blot them out. The mercy of God is greater than your heart, and it's greater than your conscience, and it's greater than these little ledgers that we keep running around in the back of our heads. Isaiah puts it this way. I, I am he. God connects this mercy with his godness, his I amness. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. It's God's glory and joy to do it. I will remember not your sins. That's the first blessing. 
Here's the second, verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now here the idea is rest. We need rest. We need relief. This is the counterpart to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to refreshment. To the end of all of our efforts to establish our own righteousness. God's own presence then brings us refreshment. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. It's very important to grasp this, I think, and to yearn for this and to to pray for this and to seek this. It's, It's one thing to confess and believe, as we should, that God is with us. It is another thing altogether, and Jonathan Edwards points this out, to experience God's presence. That's what this is talking about here. Actual refreshment, which comes from the water of life, which flows from the throne of God in the heavenly city down into your soul. Right? It's one thing to confess that God is near us, God will refresh us. It's another thing to actually drink refreshment in and drink it now. This refreshment that Peter has in view is a foretaste. Right? It's a taste, it's an appetizer of the coming Sabbath rest. The coming eternal rejuvenation of the saints. First forgiveness, then rest and refreshment in the presence of the Lord. In the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is for even Presbyterians. It's not just for the Pentecostals. Right? We desperately have to have it. We have to have it. So finally, the third blessing of repentance, and this is a blessing pointed to by the healing of the lame man. It's a remarkable uh, saying here, is the coming restoration of all things. Right? At the coming of Christ in glory. The text says that he may send the Christ appointed for you, namely Jesus. So notice this. The Christ who has already been sent, the Christ appointed for Israel, he will send again. This Jesus, we are told, is the one, notice, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things spoken about by the prophets. Jesus must remain in heaven. And when he comes back from heaven, he will restore all things. That's what the restoration of the lame man pointed to. That's what the gift of the Spirit and the refreshment of God's presence to you points to. This is the fullness of the messianic promises. Right? We're not talking here about Jesus restoring some things or most things or a whole bunch of future things. This is the restoration of all things. When Jesus returns from heaven, he will restore all things. Then... In the world to come, as Hebrews 2 puts it, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, Hebrews 2. In the world to come, as Hebrews 2 puts it, all things will be openly, visibly subjected to Christ. Everything will be restored to its intended glory. Then, when our bodies are redeemed... The creation will be liberated, Romans 8 says, from its futility. 
This time, then, of the restoration of all things, Jesus calls the new world or the regeneration in Matthew 19. Listen to this. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's a reference to the coming resurrection. You've been born again or regenerated, but the whole cosmos is going to be regenerated. On the great and magnificent day of which Peter has already referred to which. Calvin says of this verse, so again, he's talking about the phrase, the restoration of all things when Jesus comes from heaven. He says this, we must seek Christ nowhere else but in heaven while we await the final restoration of all things. So, our, let's just recap. Your sins are blotted out. We receive rest and refreshment from God in view of, as foretaste of, the coming restoration of all things. That's the call to repentance. Finally, the witness of the prophets. Right? He turns to the greatest prophet. He evokes the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So Peter is saying, look, Jesus is the eschatological Moses. He speaks, and indeed he is speaking through the apostolic preaching, and this is why it's imperative that they and we listen to him, listen to the apostolic word. Because, and here's a threat, It's it's a threat of a covenant sanction. Peter says, every soul that doesn't listen to the end time Moses, to the greater Moses, shall be cut off from the covenant, cut off from the people. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. There are true and false sons of the prophets. There are true and false sons of the covenant. All of the prophets from Samuel on, we're told, spoke of these days, the days which Peter is expounding. So Peter says, look, there's a unified testimony of the prophets. Not only to Christ's suffering, but to his glory and to the proclamation of the gospel. To Israel first and then to the ends of the earth. And to the coming restoration of all things. You can find that across the prophets. They all speak with one voice. And then he mentions the covenant again, bracketing the text. The covenant in which God said to Abraham, in your offspring All the families of the nations shall be blessed. From the very beginning, from the time God calls Abraham, even before Abraham's circumcised, all the nations are in view in the promises. So how then is the promise that in Abraham, in his offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed? How is that fulfilled? Well, Peter tells us, verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, that is to you Israelites first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Israel needs to repent, to be true sons of the prophets and of the covenant. So in closing, let me just say a couple things. First, Paul tells us that Christ singular is the seed of Abraham, through whom the prophets, the promises are realized. I think we all understand that. Second, 
The promises to Abraham that the nations would be blessed mean that God will gather his elect. First from Israel, then from among the Gentiles, and justify them by faith alone. Galatians chapter 3. That's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic blessing of the nations. The gathering of the people of God from among the nations. But again, notice the priority. He sent him to you first. To the Jew first, then to the Greek. Isaiah 49 tells us, for example, that the suffering servant will restore, or the servant will restore the tribes of Israel first, and then restore the nations. So, to conclude, the healing of the lame man, far from being an isolated miracle, turns out to be embedded in this rich system of what I would call reformed theology, of the covenant. It turns out to be a great encouragement for us, both Jew and Gentile. Because the healing of this lame man is a window into the gospel. From that mighty work, we realize God has glorified his servant. And he's done it in fulfillment of the covenant and the words of all the prophets. It's a terrible truncation, right, to to see the healing of the lame man and and, and get out of it something like, wow, Jesus has a lot of power. Or wouldn't it it be nice to be healed or something like that? It's about God's fulfillment of his promises. And we see that it is repentance and faith. Not once, but continually by grace. Repentance and faith. Trusting in, casting ourselves. Regardless of our defilement. Remember, we are talking to a crowd that's guilty of murdering the author of life. You cast yourselves upon Jesus Christ, his name. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the author of life, and he makes you whole. He will make you whole. So God has glorified his servant. And thus we, in all of our ignorance, in all of our deceit, in all of our wickedness, we have our sins blotted out in him. And through the Pentecostal spirit, the spirit we commemorate and celebrate on this day, times of refreshment. Notice the plural, times of refreshment. From the presence of the Lord, whom heaven must receive until he comes in glory to restore all things. Amen.